want to begin by asking the rest of you to imagine what it would have felt like to be the person who said, I do not know Jesus. I do not know Jesus. And a third time, I swear I do not know Jesus. Imagine what that would have felt like to be that person. Imagine what it would have felt like to be Peter. Because when we look at all the gospel accounts, that's exactly what Peter did. Under oath, as if to say, with my hand on a stack of Bibles, third time, I absolutely, positively, no matter what, do not know Jesus. What do you do if you're Peter, the great failed follower of Jesus? Think about being him, the great failed follower of Jesus. What do you do? In a sense, I think there's nothing you can do. But what I do want to suggest to you this morning is it's a great thing that Jesus did something. Jesus does something about that. And we learn about it in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Jesus according to John, which is where we're going to be this morning. In light of Peter's cosmic, horrific denials and failure, Jesus responds. And Jesus responds powerfully, wonderfully, carefully, profoundly. And I I don't want to take away from the narrative, and I don't want to take away from what happens in this text, but certainly there's something that we can learn, though we're not Peter, about Jesus and His compassion regarding those who are failed followers of Jesus. And so hopefully you can also, in the back of your mind, keep it there and find some encouragement that would come from the way Jesus deals with, with Peter, to know something about how He might deal with you. Twenty-first chapter of John. It's really divided into two sections. I'm going to do my best to have us get through the whole thing today. It's kind of a sad day. I kind of feel like I'm ready to preach through John now. I've loved John's gospel account. I'm so glad I didn't preach it a long time ago because I'm afraid I just would have messed it all up. Maybe I did this time. I don't know. But it's great to see Jesus in so many different scenarios, engaging so many different kinds of people from unbelievers of every kind of stripe to believers of every kind of stripe. He's a great Savior. And we're going to see that here. Let's read the opening three verses without any comment. I'll use self-control. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And He revealed Himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of His disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to Him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing.
So the week-long feast in Jerusalem has ended. And so they go back to their homes. There they are, Sea of Tiberias, also known as Sea of Galilee. Lake Gennesaret, it's called a sea because it has sea-like features sometimes. I, I hope to be there in about two months on the seashore where this happened, as well as on a boat because all godly people get on... Never mind. Peter's going to go fishing. Some people read this and say, what a compromiser. He went back to his old job and he's supposed to be a fisher of men. I'm not going to quite do that. Because in light of the other accounts, Jesus told them he would meet them in Galilee. Okay? And so I think they're supposed to be in Galilee at this point in time. You don't need to take my word for it. It does say in Matthew 26, 32, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 28, 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Verse 10 of Matthew 28, uh, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. They're there to see Jesus. So they're fishing in the meantime, I take it. Because all good godly people fit. They're hungry, you know. It's what they know how to do. Professional fishermen. The lot of them. And they're there until they see Jesus showing up there. It's pretty straightforward. Not very complicated at all. So let's keep reading in verse 4. Just as day was breaking... Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Early morning fog, hard to see. Maybe that's it. They're about a hundred steps away as we're going to see. Maybe that's it. Sometimes Jesus in His resurrection state is clearly identifiable, we've seen. Sometimes He isn't. Maybe that's it. It doesn't matter. But at this point in time, they don't know that it's Jesus. But what I want you to see is something theological and profound and significant that maybe we would quickly glance over if we weren't paying close attention. Once again, did you notice in verse 4 something that's been a pattern in chapter 20? Jesus stood on the shore. Earlier, Jesus has revealed Himself. Jesus is the one who, the incarnate Jesus we've learned about in John. The fulfilling the law perfect life one, going to the cross, really truly crucified, horrifically one, really raised from the dead one, revealed standing one. The crucified one who stands, putting it all together, is revealed. That's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing that we shouldn't overlook. In chapter three, chapter 20, I think three times it talks about Jesus standing. I made a big deal out of it last time. There's a pattern going on here again. Really, truly crucified, standing, and this is the revelation. He used that word in the opening verses, and he's going to use it again. This is a huge, big deal. It's a huge, 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 big deal. In light of Hebrews chapter 1, we won't take the time to read it. It's in my notes, but some things have to go sometimes. God has been speaking, right? 
He's been revealing in lots of different ways throughout history, through the prophets and all these various ways. God has spoken to us. And then Hebrews chapter 1, lots of you know this because it's such a beloved text by Christians. It says, and then in these last days, in these final climactic days where everything and all the other revelation was headed, pointing toward, anticipating, in these last days, what? He's spoken to us. He's, that's a revelation word. He's revealed truth to us and it's been in His Son. And that text goes on to say, it's the text where it says, today I have begotten you. It's that revelation and that statement is used again and again and again in the New Testament for resurrection. God's ultimate revelation to us is the crucified standing Jesus because He's the victor. He's the conqueror. It's quite astounding. So don't miss some of the small details if they're there and to be noticed on purpose. In light of chapter 20, verse 14, 20, verse 19, 20, verse 26, and now our verse, it's meant to be noticed, no doubt, He's the stand, crucified standing revelation. Let's move on for now. Verse 5 says, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Not that advice from somebody who grew up in a carpenter's home, right? Two professional fishermen. Something weird's happening. Seven says, That disciple whom Jesus loved, we know and we've seen and we'll see again, that's John who's writing this, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. You know what I wrote in my notes? Of course he did. <laughs> it's what you'd expect, right? J- John sees that it's the Lord, uh, that it's Jesus, and, and, he, and he does thoughtful theology, right? It's the Lord. Rational. And Peter hears that it's the Lord, he hears the thoughtful, rational theology, and he jumps in the water. I almost said ocean, but it's not ocean, but they call it a sea, so it's confusing. Of course he did. Apparently the world needs both kinds of people (laughs) who are followers of Jesus. Act first, process later. That's what Peter's doing. Peter, at least, I don't want to read too much into this, but Peter at least has his wits about him to, to go to Jesus in a presentable way. I love the picture. I love the image. Okay, verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. And fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. I want to come back to the charcoal fire 
We've seen a charcoal fire one other time in John in chapter 18, so I don't think it's a mistake that we have the Peter incident with the charcoal fire in chapter 18, and now we have the charcoal fire incident for restoration. Remember Jesus, Peter denying Jesus around the charcoal fire. Verse 11 says, So Simon went, oh, uh, went, went aboard and, and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Two things to notice. The nets commonly tore. In fact, when Jesus recruited the disciples, what were they on the, on the seaside sea, sea doing? Try to say that. They're mending their nets. That's just the normal thing that you do. So they're normal to tear. This would stand out as that's abnormal. They're all of these fish and the nets don't break. So that's curious. That's particular. Something extraordinary is happening here. Just like, well, just cast it on the other side. That's extraordinary. It's meant to be that way. It's extraordinary. There are 153 fish. Isn't that what it said? 153? And what's the significance of 153 fish? Okay, get out your phone calculators because I'm going to show you. It's a special hidden meaning. No, I think that kind of thing is for fish oil salesmen. You see what I just did there? Wasn't even funny. Snake oil salesmen, fish oil salesmen. Never mind. I think there are 153 fish because there were 153 fish. All kinds of bizarre things have been... I think made up. I think there's 153 fish because there's 153 fish. And the reason that's significant is because it's a lot of fish. And they either are used to counting them because you count them to divvy them up amongst those who are working, or you count them because that's how you sell them, or maybe they weigh them, I don't know. So, But but regardless, the idea is they either know there's 153 because it's common to count them, or they know that there's 153 because there's so many of them, they said, let's count them. But it's probably not for the Bible code stuff. The revelation is not of secret meanings. How ironic. The revelation text. Thing truth is revealed. Oh, but I've got a secret. Come over here. I've got a special hidden meaning. Boy, am I going to make a lot of money if I can get this published. 153 fish. Jesus is great. Jesus is amazing. Jesus orchestrated the events. Jesus provided all this for us. He is remarkable and not... He's he's extraordinary. I almost call him abnormal, but that wouldn't sound right. He's orchestrating. How about verse 12? Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast and I will show you the secret Bible codes. No, right? Come and have breakfast. Come and be with me. The point is me, not the hidden stuff that makes it about us. Come and enjoy me. Come and have breakfast. I'm the great provider, the great satisfier. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, the dare asking, there's some kind of fear going on here, right? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed. He's in revealing mode, not in concealing mode. And revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. We're doing okay on time, so I'll tell you a quick story. 
The reason I was making a big deal out of the 153 thing is because it's pretty popular to do it. It has been throughout church history for people to do that. Um, but it's also been objected to most commonly. So, and I don't want this to sound like a sales pitch for going to Israel. You can't get your money in now anyway. We're already ready to go. It's too late. But the last time we were here, and I don't know if it was me or my brother talking about this, reading the text, because it's cool to be right there where it happened, read the text and explain, and we're having our little devotional there. And our guide, maybe my brother or somebody made some kind of off-handed comment about the secret hidden meaning of the 153, you know, kind of sarcasm from an Abendroth. Anyway, so, and you know, I was like laughing, and the, the guide would have none of it. And the guide like proceeds to tell us all about the hidden meanings. And now we know the Bible's actually true because it's got hidden meanings to back it up and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like busting the gut. I mean, my, like, so my ribs still hurt because Molly was elbowing me so bad. Shut up, right? Be respectful. Don't, don't do this. So I just, anyway. Then later he went home and then came back and he had it all printed out for me and special and neither here nor there. The greatness is the revelation. And the revelation is of Jesus. And we don't need secrets to know about Jesus who has revealed himself so that we can know who he is. Back to our issue at hand. This is now another revelation of Jesus. Why do we have to keep having Jesus resurrected, standing and revealed? One time would be enough, right? One time would be enough. But it keeps happening. They keep showing us Jesus resurrected. Crucified Jesus now standing. There is no excuse to say, well, you know, there's just not enough evidence. No, this isn't in some kind of back alley kind of appearance from some person who is known for being a huckster. He's showing himself to sophisticated people. He's showing himself to not sophisticated people. He's showing himself here. He's showing himself here. He's showing himself here. Repeated revelations, bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's significant to us, not only for the historicity of things, but also for the fact that he's raised for us. Your hope of resurrection and new life is based upon His resurrection and new life. That's the positive side. His standing is the key to your spiritual, to use the Apostle Paul, standing before God. So we love to see Him standing. And then in light of Acts chapter 17, His standing is also proof He's going to one day judge unbelievers. So it's no wonder that if I'm not going to bow the knee and believe in Jesus, I do not want Him to be the crucified standing one. But it sure seems like He is. Again and again and again. Back to that fireside deja vu thing. Now we're going to move on and watch Him reinstate Peter in verses 15 and following. So there they are by the fire. Think back to chapter 18 by the fire. We're... Peter is swearing that he doesn't know Jesus. Spiritual train wreck. Verse 15 says, When they had finished breakfast, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these fish? Some interpreters say. Not very many people, but some do. If you do, that's fine. Glad you're here. Um, grammatically, it's possible. Do you love me more? So, do you love me more than your job, right? That's why it's not a silly interpretation. Do you love me more than you love your friends? Or, grammatically possible, that might be it. Or, do you love me more than any of them love me? Most interpreters go for choice number three. All would be actually true, right? You better prioritize me above everything, including your job. You better prioritize, prioritize me over everything, including your closest friends and coworkers. In light of Peter, who in the past has been saying he loves Jesus more than anybody, Jesus might be picking up that thread. It's been his boast. He's shown radical commitment to Jesus in the past. But he's really, really, really blown it. So let's take up the, re the rest of verse 15 in that light. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. First observation, let's at least make toward the end there, from the end, that, that Peter seems to be growing here in his understanding of things and how things work. Jesus, you know everything. He's learned that. This is good. This is progress. I mean, regardless of how many times we go back and forth and how you ask me the question and whichever words you happen to be using, because he uses some different words, you, 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 you know me. And it seems, in light of what's going to happen, in light of what has happened, you know, in the past, maybe he could have said such a thing and we would have thought, yeah, that's the problem. Jesus knows you. And you say things and you don't, you, you don't, you don't stay committed. But in light of what Jesus is going to say, I think that, that that's changed. Jesus, how exactly does he say it? You know everything. You know that I love you. I like that. I can't pretend in front of you, but, and I mean this in all the best senses, because I sometimes use it, use it in a condescending, condescending way. Jesus, you know my heart. You know that I truly, genuinely, authentically do love you. There's discussion about which words are used for love, and there's different words used for love, and that may be what he's up to. And if that's your favorite view, you've got lots of support on your side. There's also lots of support to say it's more of a stylistic thing. Just like he says lambs and sheep, he's just using a different way of saying it. 
and ultimately in the end he's driving at the same thing. Do you love me? Then here's how you show a tangible way of loving me, by tending to believers. Do you love me? Tangible way of doing it, tending to believers. Love me? Tangible way of showing it, tend to believers. They're your priority now when I leave. And I tend to opt more in that direction, but I wouldn't want to argue with you about it. I think what's happening is this. Three denials, three opportunities for stating his loyalty. I love you, I love you, I love you. I love you with that kind of love, I love you with that kind of love. I love you, you know me, you know me and you know that I love you. And by the way, if Jesus already knows all things like Peter says and Peter's right, this isn't for Jesus. This is for Peter. And this is so cool. Based on what Jesus is going to say, and it's going to sound bad, it's actually affirming this devotion love. And it's meant to give Peter assurance. It's, It's really, really cool what we're about ready to see. How about verse 18? Truly, truly, Earnestly, earnestly, sober-mindedly, sober-mindedly. This is absolutely true. Pay close attention. Eyes wide open. Truly, truly, I say to you, sincerely, sincerely, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Doesn't, it's not something I use in my ordinary language and not something you use, but apparently it was something that they used. Thankfully, Jesus goes on to explain in verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. First read, it's not very encouraging, right? I love you, I love you, I love you. It's earnest, it's genuine. You know that it is. And here's how you're going to show that, by being devoted to my people, devoted to my cause, devoted to my church, my lambs, if you will, my sheep. And Peter, you know what? I know that you actually do love me. Because you are going to persevere to the end. And you are going to die via crucifixion. You do love me. Yeah, we hear that. We say, that, that's terrible. It is terrible. But it's also meant to assure Peter, you're not going to walk off the track again. There isn't going to be any more of this denial by the fireside. I know that you love me. Because you will stay devoted. It's kind of like, but not exactly the same. Like in the book of Hebrews, I think it's in the book of Hebrews where Timothy is imprisoned. Well, in 2 Timothy, Timothy's got to be exhorted and challenged. Don't compromise. Be faithful, even though everybody wants you to compromise. And then we're encouraged later in the book of Hebrews, you know what, Timothy didn't compromise. And he had to go to jail for it. It sounds like a terrible thing, but it actually shows genuineness of devotion to Jesus and his people. Here, Peter apparently is going to show genuineness to Jesus and his people. Not apparently, he's going to. And Jesus knows that he is to the point where he'll give his life for it. 
This helps us a little bit to understand that kind of uh, cryptic reference in 1336. In 1336, not the date, but chapter and verse. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. You're going to die too, Peter. Clement of Rome, AD 96. Peter is martyred under Nero. Turretin, writing later in the next century, um, says that Peter was crucified. So extra biblical sources because it's after we have the Bible. Verse 19 then says, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. That was where it all started in chapter 1, verse 43. Jesus said to the disciples, follow me. Now he's saying it again. Think about about how Jesus, this tells us Jesus is sovereign. He knows the future for Peter's life. Uh, Think about how Jesus said in John 10, in John 17, things like, I will lose none of them. All that you've given me, he says to his Father, I will, and I'm going to paraphrase here, save to the very end, and I won't lose any of them. That's all true. But what it's not saying is, Peter, your life is going to be awesome. Your destiny is awesome and you get to represent me to the world and you have an awesome message and an awesome gospel to proclaim and I know you're going to be faithful I, or I know you love me because you are going to face and pay the greatest cost. So again, in that kind of weird, I don't like the way the medicine goes down way, it's meant to assure Peter, I know you love me. I think it's important and good for us to hear because we hear false teachers tell us all of the time that if you are a true believer in Jesus and you truly love Jesus, then everything is going to go well for you. To the point where if it's not going well for you, then you should maybe question your assurance. And here we have the exact, exact opposite. When the bad times come and, oh, they're going to come for you, Peter, I know you're going to persevere to the end and that should give you assurance that you really belong to me. Very, very, right? This is countercultural, counter sometimes evangelical culture, certainly counter... TV, televangelist, health, wealth, and prosperity culture. Oh, this is just proof. You know, look how it ended for Peter. This is proof that Peter didn't really love Jesus enough. No, he did. There's something for us to learn there for sure. How about verse 20? Verse 20 says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John. And the, the, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? That's John, our, our, our gospel account writer, 21. When Peter saw him, he said to him, Lord, what about this man? Now, we could question his motives, but let's just not do that even. You say, you've just told me the future for my life. My friend John over here, what's going to happen in his life? 
How does his future compare to my future? Verse 22 says, Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, what would you say? In other words, fill in the blank. It's none of your business. Right? I am sovereign, Jesus is saying. Here's how it's going to end for you. And I am sovereign and I'm in control to the point where if I wanted it to be, he'll be alive until I do second coming. It's up to me. I'm sovereign. I'm in charge. But it's none of your beeswax. Right? And how about us learning a lesson from that? I mean, if you've been along, alive long enough you know that some of the most miserable people in the world are people who are always looking at other people who seem to have it better than they do. Especially when we're suffering. It's like the worst thing. Peter, trust in me. I'm sovereign and good and for you. And I'm sovereign and good and for John. Now be like one of those horses with the blinders on and just look forward and you'll be okay. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to have a terrible life. I love that. So think about this. As far as the details go, we don't know how it's going to be for people. The worst, the best. Short life, long life. Healthy life, sick life. I mean, right? We just... Great marriage, terrible marriage. I mean, you just fill in the blank. We, we, don't, we don't know as far as the details go. But it is awesome, my friends who are Christians, my friends who are not Christians. We don't know as far as the details go, but the great thing is, God does. I wasn't even planning to say that, but that would be true in light of what Jesus says earlier. But the great thing is we know on a big picture scale how it works out for everyone who's a believer. This takes us back to John chapter 6, John chapter 10, John chapter 17. He loses none of them. He loses none of them, whether they're 98 years old or 8 days old. If they belong to him, just for extremes. John's, I, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but John 6.39, I should lose nothing. John 10.28, never perish. No one can snatch them. No one kind of language. So we can know that for all Christians. If it is my will, though, are the five important words. Okay, let's keep going because we need to wrap this up. Verse 23. So the saying spread abroad. How about this? The saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Right? You're going, kill me now. Right? Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will, you will remain until I come. That is, what is that to you? So wrenching things out of context is nothing new. It happened then. It happens now, right? 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Might sound self-centered. He's been seeing, 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 seeing with others, corroborating with others. It's a legitimate testimony, in other words. 
multiple, multiple, multiple appearances, legitimate, legitimate, legitimate. Then in 1 John, 1 John's pretty cool because it talks about, it's, it's with all the senses. We saw him, we touched him, we heard him, we did all these things with him. So it's a credible eyewitness testimony. It wasn't from a burning in our bosom or some kind of weird thing like that. Verse 25, we're going to end on this note. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There's so much more, probably emphasizing, he's so much greater. But in light of what we've read, while we might not have everything, because we don't, In light of what we've read, chapter 20 especially, but the whole book, we have everything we need to know who He truly is and therefore know who God truly is, chapter 1, and therefore to believe in Him and therefore we have everything we need for eternal life. And that's been the message of John. To know who He really is This isn't blind faith, it's informed faith based upon reality so that you would believe and have life eternal. That's the message of John. Here's who Jesus really is. Conquered sin and death and the grave. Resurrection for everyone who would ever believe in Him. And in chapter 20, it was actually a call to believe in Jesus. So if you're here today and you're believing in Jesus, John should give you assurance Say, this is so good to know these things about Jesus. These are things I knew before, but now I know them better. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, the reasonable thing to do, quite honestly, by God's grace, would be to believe in Jesus. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for uh, your grace and your kindness and your love that you've shown to us supremely and ultimately in your son Jesus grant saving faith and grant repentance to those who have never ever believed in Jesus and have never repented and Lord for those of us who have may we have gratitude like we've never had before wanting to know Jesus the Savior even better in Jesus name we pray amen